everybody. It's Mark Bennett speaking. I'm head of agribusiness here at ANZ, and I'm joined today by Bryony Callender, Maddie Swan, and Michael Whitehead. And we're just going to run through our key agri commodities today. How how are things holding up as we move through the middle of spring? And an opportunity to to hear thoughts of our analysts and hopefully help you make some good decisions in your business. Uh, as an overall, I mean, it's hard to keep track these days about which iteration of COVID-19 we might be up against or in, particularly for some of us who are still sitting in Melbourne metropolitan. But um, look, it's fantastic to see out there across the regions generally that the season has continued to perform pretty well. It's especially good, I think, still in some spots where it had been poorer for longer. And uh, we can only now hope at this critical period that, you know, the frost stays out, the rain stays away, maybe the final rain comes in. Hard to please everybody. But what, you know, I think, again, we're talking at the moment about Things looking pretty good could have been worse if we cast our minds back for the things that could have gone wrong. Hasn't really happened. So let's hope we can see it through in this next critical four, six weeks. And, um, you know, from a seasonal point of view, things things really good. The, the world of COVID, I mean, it continues to impact uh, without necessarily crashing anything here, agri-related. It's been difficult for our processing sectors, our meat processes, I think, to deal with the shifting rules and regulations. But in the main, we've seen supply in the shelves, um, supply coming off farm, more so now as we go into spring sort of flush periods. And, you know, everyone through the supply chain, I think, has been really flexible beyond the farm gate, which is played an enormous hand in keeping food supply smooth and prices relatively stable in what has been a continuing strong commodity price environment. Beef is sort of through the roof. Wool is kind of off the floor. Uh, We've seen grain prices generally hang on, even with some of the persistent sort of strength, maybe, of the Aussie dollar at closer to 70 cents than 60 for a while now. takes a bit of gloss off, but we've also got interest rates at record lows, really, for the most borrowers out there in the market, that you know, as low as they've ever seen. So, you know, it's looking really steady, really solid. Uh, let's hope it finishes out because there's a big chance, I think, for farmers across Australia this year to collect and make up some ground on some some poorer times. And there are others, of course, that have had a pretty good run over, over a couple of years and... Um, an opportunity really to consolidate and and maybe think more towards investment and growth again. So really good um, period we've just been through, I think. And uh, to talk more specifically through the commodities, I'll introduce our first speaker today, Michael Whitehead. Welcome to the line. And yeah, beef prices obviously really strong. What do you make of uh, the strengths in this market at the moment? Thanks, Mark. This strength in beef prices is intriguing for all observers in the industry. Uh, If we think back to February this year, that's when the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator went through 700 cents. 
pretty soon after that, people were saying it was too high and would have to go down. Uh, and here we sit in mid-October and it's knocking on the door of 800 cents. Continues to be high. Um, obviously, the, the three kinds of buyers who are pushing it, it's being particularly pushed by restockers. There's still a lot of grass out there, which has come from the good rains. There is a limited supply of cattle on the market uh, after the impacts of the drought and destocking. So limited supply is keeping prices high. And and uh, because herds on so many places had gone down, restockers are continuing to buy. Feedlots in a secondary way also buying reasonably strongly uh, behind the prices that restockers are paying. And also... Oh, very importantly in that market, processors uh, who are paying less again but being impacted by those prices. When will they go down? Well, the, the thinking is that they have to stop eventually from these points, uh, but they may have a, at least a couple more months uh, of acceleration behind them. It's a really interesting balance, isn't it, between whether the, you know, the low herd side itself stabilises prices yet there might be some consumer resistance at high prices in, in the shelves. What can we sort of expect to see there, do you think? It'll be really interesting, particularly at this time of year with consumer prices, because we're coming into barbecue season and we're coming into Christmas season. So uh, retail sales will traditionally go up there is every chance that the price of meat on the shelf may go up to reflect these high prices on the supermarket shelf, in the butcher shop as well. But on the other hand, you've got to look at the fact that throughout the whole COVID disruption period, uh, domestic consumption of red meat has arguably gone up as, as consumers have bought more. And as consumers are spending less in other parts of their lives, particularly on holidays and other things they can't do, they, they turn to their household consumption and their food consumption. So they may well absorb some of these prices in meat as well. Uh, meat prices can't go up indefinitely and not have any impact on consumers, but there is every chance we will see prices go up slightly. And do we see in export markets the same level of enthusiasm or... Um, are things softening out? We obviously reached the China quota number much earlier this year and, you know, there's some declining sales into there. Is export sort of prices in line or disconnected with what we're seeing in the domestic economy? Well, exports have been hit by the disruptions much more than the domestic trade and they have been impacted by other issues arguably outside of prices. China, as we've all seen in the paper, has seen the Australian beef exports hit by factors such as, as you say, the hitting the safeguard tariff there, but also by some of the bans on processes as well. So that is there, and, and exports to China are way down based on a few of those factors, as well as competition from the South Americans. And, and that is a price impact, uh, with the South American currencies down and the product cheaper. The uh, other three major markets we have for our beef, Japan and South Korea, they're both down notably, about 16% on last year, but we are starting to see some recovery there. And exports to the US, down about 20% on last year. The US has had a domestic surge in beef because of some of the disruptions they had there in processing. And once again, we're seeing that South American competition, which is both a volume play and a price play coming into the US market. South American exports we have known about for years that we'll have to continue to watch in those major markets. Thanks, Michael. All right, well, an important feature of our horticulture market in recent times has been the real 
success of nuts, uh, particularly almonds and macadamias, as we've seen really uh, amazing export sales success, a really sought uh, product for its uh, health attributes and and and, uh, and benefits. So, Michael, um, can you put us in perspective here? The nut story has been strong. Will it continue to remain so? Mark, the nut story has been one that's been in the agricultural media for a while now. It's an interesting one because there's so much discussion in our industry about investment and institutional and corporate investment into agriculture. And you could argue that the the nut story in Australia, almonds, macadamias and others, has really attracted that corporate investment. And it continues to attract it. We continue to see a lot flowing in, a lot being planted. Uh, and on the, the important side, the returns, we are seeing those strong exports. It is intriguing to see that Australia's nut exports, which in 2018-2019 uh, went to $1.1 billion, are higher at that point than Australia's total fruit exports were only three years earlier. So absolutely, they continue to grow in exports. Um, where will they go in the next couple of years? There are COVID-related uncertainties, but uh, they are grey areas and uncertainties. They may well remain strong, but we uh, we just have to see what some of the impacts, particularly into the key markets, will be. Yeah, and how do we describe the um, the investment landscape here? I mean, for, for these six plantings, there's a lot of upfront costs, time to bearing and um, production, which can be a few years. And so, so a lot of capital invested. Uh, what type of investor is attracted to this market, and is that um, planting growth ongoing, or um, are we seeing a st- stabilisation, particularly as we've seen water um, become less available over the last couple of years? This year aside, it is interesting to look at the investment into the nut industry in Australia and compare the rationale for it uh, to investments in other major sectors, whether it's livestock, whether it's uh, uh, annual crops, uh, whatever it may be. If you look at the investor who's looking at nuts, yes, there is the the upfront planting and a lot of uh, what's required then. But then you could arguably say in a way it is set and forget after that. It requires the water, but, but certainly not the, the same kind of work needed for some of the agricultural investments. So that, that attracts the institutional investor who can see what the export demand will be, the story of that, particularly into China. As you say, they can see a world where the consumer is getting healthier, trying to get healthier and making nuts part of their diet as well. And also a story where, apart from Australia, there really are very few competitors. The US is a major producer of nuts, uh, far bigger than Australia. But uh, after Australia, there really isn't that much other competition. So it keeps the market particularly strong. The issue of water is one that does create some questions and some uncertainty over investors globally. They are looking for what the certainty of water allocation and some kind of idea of what water prices will be. But that is one which is continuing to play out and investors will put that into their risk rating as they work out what they'll do. Yeah, thanks. It'll be interesting to watch as more volume comes in off our our crop and whether that pressures prices or not, but again, export dependent of the dollar um, exposed and um, I guess with a key competitor being the US or, or California more specifically, um, we do have that seasonality that you know gives us maybe um, to a fair degree fresh product into the Asian market on our own.
Absolutely. And look, I suppose the other big point to raise there is the change that we're seeing. Almonds have always been the predominant uh, nut for production in Australia. Uh, what is really interesting to see is that macadamias now account for around a bit under 20% of our, our total nut exports. Almonds account for around three quarters of the volume and about two thirds of the total exports. But macadamias really have a price premium on them. As I say, about 16% of the exports, but 26% of the value. Uh, so, so the premium there continues to be realised. Thank you, Michael. Now, turning our attention to the sheep industry, we've really loved seeing the success in uh, sheep and wool over a fair period of time now, but I'll introduce Maddie to update us on, on sheep markets. Maddie, the prices have been strong and ongoing, but I guess there was concern for a while there, particularly in the southern processing sector, as Victoria went into lockdown and the capacity to process and supply the market was was a hot topic and, and in question. How have we emerged from that at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Mark. We certainly have had a period of some downward pressure on prices for, the, for a few months now, but the good news is to see that we really have emerged strongly out of that um, out of that price um, decline in, in recent weeks. So now we have the National Trade Lamb indicator sitting at over 800 cents, um, just slightly below where it was in 2019, which is a huge return to form uh, after the past few months. Uh, we also have Victorian meat processing capacity basically back to full capacity, which has helped drive those prices. So the other drivers really is uh, down to a really good season, which has meant a good lambing rate and a good marking rate. So there's lots of lambs on the ground and lots of grass in the paddocks. So there's a lot of demand for, from restockers. And you'll see just um, just when we compare prices between different categories of sheep that um, the, the restocker lambs really are jumping away a lot quicker than heavy or light or trade lamb um, prices. So it really is the restockers driving that demand. Um, and that's primarily because of the old story of supply, supply, supply. We've got uh, a historically low national flock expected for this year of about 63.8 million. Um, and with cattle prices at sky high um, rates and, and cattle producers also looking to restock, um, many producers are looking at whether they can restock with sheep rather than cattle, um, where they have the infrastructure. And so that's also driving prices high. Um, the other thing that's driving prices at the moment is the return of the exporters to the market following COVID. Um, they're taking up some of the slack on heavy lambs, which had had been pulling the market lower previously. If we just look at exports, um, the most recent figures show that exports to the US are up 25% on this time last year, but uh, exports to China are actually down 28%. So that's a bit of a reversal of form from the past couple of months where China had been holding us up and the US and the Middle East were lagging. Uh, Middle East, unfortunately, is still lagging, but that's got more to do with their logistical supply chains and their actual demand. Um, so if we look at what the sheep market is uh, expected to look like going forward. Um, as I said, we're expecting a very low national flock um, of 68.3 million. MLA is saying that should only rebuild to about 72 million by 2023. So that's saying that that low supply condition should last for quite some time uh, to, to come. So as a result of that, we're going to have lower than normal production, lower than normal slaughter and lower than normal supply. So we wouldn't expect um, at prices to decline much further than they have outside of something a large like COVID happening. The other real question facing many producers right now is, is whether the easing of prices that we have been through in the past couple of months really just a 
uh, price correction that comes with the spring flush and had come early, as it has been for many years in a row now. It keeps getting earlier and earlier and earlier. Or was it purely COVID-related and can we actually expect another uh, another drop in prices as the new season's lambs hit the sales yard? For mine, my opinion is that we wouldn't imagine prices to fall a huge amount more from where they are, but at the same time, I wouldn't expect them to go much higher either. Yeah, so even with return to seasons, um, strong confidence from producers getting stock on the ground, markets hanging on pretty well and a long rebuild in front of us, as you say, um, makes for a sustained-looking um, profitable period for, for growers. Um, to me, are you seeing any separation in the way the market's performing from lamb and mutton? Yes, mutton, ha- mutton prices have felt the real brunt of the COVID um COVID pandemic, um, primarily because our mutton industry is mainly focused on export markets. So that really has taken a real hit uh, for the past six or eight or nine months. However, we are seeing it return to form somewhat, and that's primarily, again, because of supply. As I said, a lot of of producers are looking to restock um, as best they can. That means that they're actually keeping ewes that they would otherwise sell to the sale yards at about five years old give or take, uh, they're actually holding this for longer, for six and seven years plus. So those low supply rates for mutton in the sale yard is also leading to a bit of upward pressure for prices. All right, well, moving to the other half of sheep, it's wool. And um, to talk about wool today, I'm joined by Bryony. Um, Bryony, things looked a little uncertain and uh, for a while now the heat's come out of the highs of the wool markets, particularly as... China eased up its buying activities and we're hearing a lot about growers holding bales back from auction and sort of trying to wait for a better time or moderate supply to to try and influence price. Um, What have we seen? How do we describe that market in October? Yeah, so we saw the Eastern Market Indicator or EMI drop down to 858 through September, which uh, was the lowest level in 18 years. Thankfully, um, that appears to have bottomed out with the, the night, it heading up to 100 cents per kilogram through October and it seems to have somewhat stabilised around there uh, with us seeing a bit more volume on the market throughout October and hopefully it, it will remain that way as we see some more volume coming on as the shearing gets underway. Really, the question remains how much more can the market absorb as the volume hits the market? It's a slightly different end market, of course, to uh, the meat game where we're talking about premium food. Premium fibres still seem to be um, harder hit. Uh, They were probably, and they were softening in global sort of retail pre-COVID and Certainly post-COVID, um, it had become worse. Uh, do, do we think that's going to influence the sort of appetite for growers to continue to focus and increase um, wool production and supply into the market or see some switching into meat breeds over the next little while? Yeah, there's a, a lot of different theories around that, but I think the, the strengthening and the stability in the wool sector will see people continue to hold sheep for wool. And there's also been talking in the industry about being able to access shearers, um, particularly in the cross-border 
areas of New South Wales and Victoria, but um, with a lot of wool coming off at the moment, does, does it appear as though we've got the labour capacity to, to get the flock shorn? Yeah, there's definitely been some concerns about uh, us not being able to receive those shearers from New Zealand, uh, which is obviously a large number of shearers in previous shearing times. And thankfully, we seem to be hearing that so far there isn't a lack of shearers taking up those jobs. I guess it's just more as we head into the peak of the shearing season, whether or not that we're going to see that limited number of shearers across the farms. And, um, and and from a seasonal perspective, and I guess it's always difficult to be accurate around predicting China inventory levels, but with the Northern Hemisphere going into a cooler period, um, demand for warmer clothing could be up, a lot of wool supporting that, and um, perhaps not necessarily through the traditional suit workwear, um, but now we're starting to talk about something called athleisure wear, and as a hybrid, maybe you could explain that and you could also tell me how much do you think of athletic takes place with this versus the leisure? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, I think we can all acknowledge that working from home, no one's really putting on that uh, nice uh, merino wool suit that maybe they had previously worn to the office. Instead, we're looking for something that's more comfortable, uh, leisure wear, athleisure wear. We can go for a walk. And, you know, it's a great opportunity for uh, wool products to, to be that natural fibre given the properties that wool has. So it'll be interesting to see as we head into the European winter where, where it's picked up in that market. There are also some concerns given we're now um, potentially seeing second wave COVID infections throughout parts of Europe, whether or not that'll impact the retail market as well. Yes, I think the, the COVID second, third wave um, shock, as it may or may not occur, is the big caveat to a lot of this talk, isn't it? And how much that would actually impact global demand and the extent of global downturn. Um, because really, as we talk about the prospects of our commodities, it really hangs off this assumption that there is no second impact and that um, the worst of that might be behind us. Yeah, well, it's um, just like yet to be seen. I guess we've seen in Victoria, certainly there's been a significant impact on retail sales throughout the second wave. So how how that'll be seen with European, the European second wave uh, we'll soon find out. We'll wait and see. And um, I think it's been fantastic to see innovation in, in wool use into the, the fashion and apparel markets. It, I think, stands us in really good stead as we get through the current period into a, a longer-term sort of stable price period, perhaps. of You know, if this is the floor, um, we can expect better things and demand to return. And I think innovation in product is going to be a big feature as Australia continues to be the biggest world um, producer of, of fine wools and, and still well-placed. I, I think it's important to note that at the current level, um, producers aren't at the highest, but um, staying profitable while we wait for better time uh, is a is a pretty good scenario. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Bryony. And now moving to the grain markets. Maddie, uh, we're looking for a big return to crop in Australia this year. How are we 
how are we facing into what our expected tonnage looks like? And, um, well, it appears prices are holding on to go with that volume so far. It's always an exciting time of year uh, as the harvesters kick off across the country um, and with harvesting underway in most parts of the country, um, it's all looking set to be a very strong harvest. Um, we've got a range of different forecasts, uh, ranging from USDA is saying about 28.5 million tonnes of wheat um, and other reports are up over 30 million tonnes of wheat. What we can say is it looks like being an exceptionally strong harvest in New South Wales. Um, and with Victoria and South Australia getting some good finishing rains um, in recent weeks, uh, that will have improved crop prospects there as well. Uh, if we look at prices, we have a look at the global market um, for wheat, we can see that wheat has had a real kick up since mid-July and it's now sitting up at 22% higher than this time last year. A lot of that has been because of uh, demand from China for US wheat. And it's actually looking like being a uh, a record global harvest. So it's interesting that despite being a record global, those prices are still continuing to trend upwards. A lot, upwards, sorry. A lot of that has been based off um, that China Chinese demand, as I mentioned, um, as China continues to build their stocks um, or their ending stocks. Uh, so. Across the globe, um, ending stocks are looking to end up at a be, be about 43%, which is a record high. But taking into account um, China, which now has built up about 90, 96% of the stocks in the past three years, without China, global stocks are about 25%, which is probably putting a better picture on why prices are acting the way they're doing. Also to add to that, the EU production has taken a bit of a hit in recent weeks um, due to some weather conditions. On the Australian side, it looks like great news. Um, we're expecting really high protein um, from most of our harvests because of good seasonal conditions. As I said, we're obviously really strong uh, total crop. And the prices have held up while not actually following the global market. Um, they haven't dipped and are sitting at about the same rate as they were last year. Combine relatively strong prices with an excellent harvest. It looks like a really, really good year for wheat producers. If we can just quickly look at barley, barley is suffering a little bit due to some of the Chinese trade restriction impositions that happened, um, most particularly CBH um, having their exports to China banned. Um, so prices are now, Australian domestic feed barley prices, pardon me, are now down about 12% on this time last year. On the upside, uh, it does look as if most Australian exports are finding different avenues for their barley exports, which now are increasingly going to Saudi Arabia. Um, and the other one to look at just quickly is canola, which domestic where domestic um, prices are really steady, but global prices are performing particularly well despite a really good uh, global uh, production outlook. Um, and that the global prices are up primarily on um, some slower processing in China and Argentina. So, so promising signs there for barley, which is obviously a much talked about crop as the the China tariff issue threw in the sort of prospects of a certain price per tonne hit that would likely to be taken. Um, but I think the market's responding to that really well. I guess whether it caps out at a certain volume as the, the harvest comes off will be interesting, as will um, farmers' willingness to sell off the header versus store. And, and then, of course, we need a clean harvest to come off to ensure we're getting those quality uh, malt and high-protein grades through the weeks to keep as much green as possible out of the feed market uh, from a grower producer 
uh, point of view, that is. Not so much if you're a feeder and looking for lower-priced grain. How, how do we see the, the feed market shaping up domestically, Maddie? So, yeah, feed wheat prices are looking to be relatively stable, which is good news for feedlotters. Similarly, uh, as I said, barley feed bar prices are down a little, which will help out um, um, feedlotters. It's simply with feedlotters, the prices, as, as was mentioned earlier by Michael, the issue is uh, the cost of cattle on the ground. So um, whilst they're being helped out somewhat by those those um, not skyrocketing uh, feed grain prices, um, I think there's still a lot of challenges in front of them. And are we expecting strong uh, milling demand from our traditional export markets? I think um, Indonesia, Vietnam and the like. Uh, the prospects good there, supporting prices still through a, through a big harvest for us? Yeah, they seem to be. There's not a huge amount of information come to, come to light on that yet, but there's nothing as yet to indicate that anything's dropped off a cliff because of COVID. So fingers crossed, things look all right there. Yep, so physically getting the crop off is the next challenge and it's there for the taking by the look of it and let's hope that we can move big volume effectively um, into the supply chain and into export markets and make the most of what looks like uh, a really promising thing. Thank you, Maddie. Yes. We're going to talk sugar now with Michael, if we can. Michael, we've had good rains and um, a good season bringing tonnage into our, our harvest, which is tailing out at the moment, what are we what are we seeing and what are we thinking for the interim period for the next um, little while? Mark, you're absolutely right. It's a common theme of rain that I suppose runs through every agri-sector uh, in every report and absolutely as important as ever for sugar. The, the good rain has meant so far that with a large amount of the sugar crop off that it's looking like being an overall cane crop up about a million tonnes on last year. So up to about 31 million tonnes. Although once you get down to raw sugar production, because the sugar content itself is down, that'll be about the same as last year, coming out to about 4.3 million tonnes. So looking good for this year. Obviously, cane producers don't want too much disruption as they try to get the last of the harvest off. But what it also bodes well for is good soil moisture. Um, and so if there are some forecasts for next year's crop, they're looking a lot better already than they would have been a few months ago when things were drier. Yeah, and um, when we talk global market, we can't help but talk Brazil, not just what they might be bringing to market, but how they're managing that ethanol versus uh, cane or sugar kind of mix. Um, are they going to are they going to influence our prospects in the global markets for what they're doing in the in the near term? Short answer: Yes, Brazil is going to continue to influence prices that Australia is getting and they're going to continue to influence those prices in a downward fashion. They are bearish, the price outlook right now. In a nutshell, when oil prices were way down earlier this year, it made more sense for sugar producers in Brazil to put their sugar onto the world market as sugar rather than to transform it into ethanol because oil remained uh, way too competitive for ethanol to be uh, economical to produce. So all that extra sugar from Brazilian mills on the world market meant that prices went down. Oil prices have gone up again quite markedly, but there's still a lot of that Brazilian sugar going back out onto the world market. And the other thing about Brazil is that they are looking towards a strong harvest uh, going forward as well. So that once again reduces the chances that uh, sugar prices will go up substantially.
in a, in a world of subsidies at play, it would seem as well. And as we look for an even playing field, we've got the subsidised um, sugar coming out of India. Um, is that something still in play and influencing us? The Indian sugar issue is definitely in play. Anything that goes through the World Trade Organisation and is discussed there and with a arbitration sought on it does take years. In a nutshell, uh, Australia, together with Brazil and Guatemala, have gone to the World Trade Organisation and argued that India's sugar export subsidies are unfairly influencing prices and unfairly pushing down prices for other countries. India, in its defence, has said that those subsidies are allowed because it's classified as a developing country until 2023 for these incentives, and it's for the transport and marketing of sugar. So that dispute continues to play out. Uh, it continues to be discussed and probably no sign of it being finished for a little while yet. And I'm um, just looking at a chart on prices and I assume it's US prices over the last 10 years. We're, we're a long way from the highs, um, but there might be an Aussie dollar influence in there as well. Are we looking at a sort of stable period at about this level? Because I guess producers would be looking for higher prices, albeit better conditions, help their efficiencies. Do we expect to move far from the current sort of last couple of years where we've bounced bounced along? If we see particularly the forecast big crops to come out of Brazil and, and in some of the other major producers as well, if India has another big crop and uh, forecast ones out of other parts of the world, then there is a likelihood that those prices, yes, will remain relatively stable and perhaps move within that US 11 to 13 cents per pound mark. Uh, it's below what Australian producers would like, but uh, it is looking like there's no great sign of upward pressure. And absolutely, we've talked about it a bit over this call, that Australian dollar, which is stronger than would have been expected several months ago under COVID, also plays a role. All right, the dairy industry's been going through a fair bit lately. We've got the Australian dairy plan coming to the surface, which is, is big debate. But perhaps first, Michael, um, if we consider pricing the global landscape, dairy farm gate prices um, had opened reasonably strongly for, for dairy farmers in Australia and our seasons and availability of water probably gone to favour in balance uh, in the last little while as well. Is, is this uh, pointing to a better period for Australian dairy? Mark, the phrase cautious optimism is one that perhaps we use in agriculture a reasonable amount because we don't know what's going to happen with rain and we don't know what's going to happen with global competitors. But we will say that dairy does have cautious optimism right now. The rain that so many regions have had has absolutely been beneficial. The feed is good, and if there's good feed, there's less need for fodder, and fodder costs go down as well. So that's been good for dairy producers. As you say as well, farm gate prices uh, have been reasonable as well. And that also, while there will always be discussion and debate over what that will be, has also meant some cause for optimism. Overall, in terms of production, we've also seen dairy production go up for the first time in three years. It's, it's broken back up through that nine billion litre mark, or it's forecast to, for 2021. So it is looking, uh, climactically particularly, that things could be reasonable for the medium term at least. It does look good and it's great to see. Uh, do we think that the markets can absorb the extra production that, um, that comes from our industry? 
the market so far, and everything looks at COVID disruption, but the markets so far have absorbed that, both on a domestic basis and on a global basis as well. What the markets have absorbed has changed a bit, as everybody's changed their lifestyles from workplaces and restaurants to eating at home and cooking at home. What that's meant is that there's been a big rise in things like butter and things like everyday cheeses that everybody's cooking with and, and things like plain yogurts that everybody's getting healthy at home with, whereas things like the specialty cheeses, which would have been eaten in workplaces or for entertaining or flavoured yogurts people would have eaten at their desks, some of those ones have declined. But it does appear that the whole overall consumption of dairy products uh, has remained reasonably strong in Australia. And cheese exports, of course, have been a big thing for our industry, um, particularly into Japan, but into a growing Asia, which is well supported by the sort of fast food or quick service sector. Is this making any kind of comeback and supporting growth again into that market, or are we still on hold as people are a little more grounded by COVID in our key consumption regions? As far as where the direction of Australian dairy exports go, and particularly with the COVID impacts, there is still that uncertainty. So a lot of it is, is yet to play out. We've seen short-term disruptions for so many ag commodities by the logistics and the freight, and now we wait to see what's going to happen with the consumption levels. If there is a good sign to all of this for whether it's cheese or other dairy exports as well, it's that the global dairy trade prices have risen twice in a row, which is really being seen by some as a sign that the demand has remained strong despite COVID and could continue to remain strong. We go back to one of the things that we've discussed with other commodities today, and that is that Australian dollar. If we are looking at our competition for cheese, for the milk powders and for other dairy commodities on the world stage, that strong Australian dollar does remain a hindrance to some extent. And we've seen over the years as well that as we start to enjoy good and improved prices for dairy, that we see in particular a supply response coming from the EU and from the US, which might have more traditionally focused on its domestic market effort. Is this the kind of thing that can still influence our prospects as we get to the end of this season, do you think? Or is supply looking uh, level that would support good prices for another year or so? Let's look at the, the global supply competition point from two angles. So the first one in terms of the supply response, it probably will come particularly out of the EU not so much in terms of taking advantage of those prices, but because of the economic factors that the Europeans, in seeking to reduce the subsidies they pay to limit the amount of dairy production there, are reducing those subsidies. So the effect it's having is that European farmers are now producing more milk. It's one of those interesting anomalies uh, that we've seen out of European agricultural subsidies for decades. So, so less regulation means more milk coming out of there. That's one side to it. On the other side to it, if we think about what an Australian dairy industry response would be to this oversupply, we need to look at the fact that dairy farms, like so many other farms, are consolidating. The average size is growing, and therefore the strength of so many of those producers who are there in the market continues to grow as well. 
So you could argue that as the Australian dairy industry, in particular the dairy farming sector, continues to evolve, its resilience grows, uh, its strength grows, its strategic expertise grows and continues to put itself in a better and better position on that world market and in that overall world game. And it is interesting to see in the dairy plan this focus towards the cost of production and profitability ahead of output because I think there is a recognition in there that really if farmers aren't going to be profitable, um, there's no real incentive for them to produce more. The dairy plan you talk about did come out uh, over the last month and like any good agricultural strategy has been the subject of much debate and continues to be the subject of much debate. As you say, in terms of profitability versus volume, it is interesting to look at the dairy industry and compare it to the wool production industry in Australia as that overall level has trended down and down but perhaps reached a plateau, as we saw happening with wool and with sheep numbers as well, what we saw was those who stayed in the game and were there had become uh, more efficient, uh, had increased their margins and had put themselves in a better position. So it will be interesting to see if dairy reaches that level that the sheep industry arguably has uh, of plateauing and finding that new strength. Yeah, let's hope so. And I think the lower cost base um, is going to play an important role in profitability as we produce a bit more milk this season by the look of it. And, and yeah, I think uh, it'll be wonderful to see the industry produce more again. But recognising the level that supports prices, I guess, will be part of the trick. But we might discuss the plan and some other issues that go with that next time around. Michael, investing, we've taken a, a section here this month or this edition to talk about an investment in agri. Um, you recently participated in the Global Ag Investing Conference, which is held in New York, obviously digital this time around. Uh, what were the themes? Mark, this year's Global Ag Investing Conference, as you say, was, was online but still brought together investors from around the world and agricultural industry stakeholders from around the world. It was intriguing to see that the impact of COVID, if anything, has stimulated investment into agriculture or the prospects of it even more than most things. If we've got that focus on food security, uh, if there is that focus on agricultural supply chains, and then on other areas as well, whether ag tech, sustainability, really has continued to whet the appetite of investors. One of the other main observations to come out of the event this year was that whereas in the past the institutional investor, the pension fund, the family offices and others who are getting into agriculture, whether in the US, in Australia or globally, have traditionally been the very large ones, we're now seeing a lot of the smaller ones, uh, those who are perhaps under a billion dollars, uh, looking at the sector and trying to work out where and how they can become involved. It must be, I mean, I think it's recognised here at least that the agri-supply chain and particularly farming has proved uh, comparatively um, insulated from the, the COVID pandemic. Is this something that's well picked up as a thing for the risk-averse or investor looking to diversify their exposures? Absolutely. The, the whole theme of agri-supply chains, and particularly for major investors, has been how do you protect the way that your agricultural production makes its way to the end market and how much, whether you are getting involved in the logistics, 
the storage, the, the shipping or transport, you can get it to the endpoint. That absolutely is, is a major theme, and that's why we're seeing new investment focus on those areas. But in terms of the overall themes that came out at the end and things where investors will continue to look at, there were, I suppose, a number of key themes, and amongst them continues to be sustainability. How much of a role is that going to play in investment? Uh, water continues to become more and more of a theme, not just for investors to become involved, but to see how it will impact their investment as well. The whole issue of regulation in different markets, not the least Australia, and whether that attracts or deters investment. And importantly, the whole impact of consumers, consumer expectations, social media, activism. If somebody is looking at investing in Australian agriculture or elsewhere, how do they have to work with this and how much do they have to take it into account? Yeah, great. And just to pick up on sustainability, I guess we would see it come through in the investors we see in this market, their consciousness around managing environment and natural capital well and carefully and even seeking to improve it um, as part of the investment mandate and certainly the caution that goes with buying into things that might carry, I want to use the word baggage would be the wrong thing, but um, there's a keenness from investors uh, around protecting reputation and ensuring their money is um, supporting efforts that do the right thing that aren't just about investing in uh, land for appreciation or production for profit. The whole role of sustainability in agricultural investment will be a very active one in the next three years. Absolutely. It is fundamental, as you say, in terms of reputation, uh, in terms of providing for ongoing efficiency of every part of agricultural production. But the industry still continues to debate issues such as the standard measurement, uh, standard expectations, the balance between commercial returns, which you need to have at the end of the day, and the sustainability of an operation. And as we're looking to political change in states, uh, in different countries as well, how much regulation in future may contain large environmental or sustainable aspects and how much investors need to be ready for any of that change before it happens. Thanks, Michael. Um, I think that that's a wrap for today. Um, I hope you've enjoyed hearing a little more about our take on some of the key plays in Agriculture Australia right now. Look forward to speaking to you all again in December when we'll know a lot more about the harvest and um, and hopefully um, a more positive environment around COVID. Uh, thank you, Maddie. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Bryony.